This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. If you'll notice, there's an outline on the front that we'll follow today, and the scriptures are embedded on the left bottom, also on the right side, the scripture order that we'll follow. Inside is some information page, and then uh, there'll be two pages of scriptures if you've got a full set, so I hope you did, and we'll follow this outline in the study. The opening scripture there is to the uh, lower part, the bottom left of the title, 2 Kings 20, and let's read verses 1 to 3. The Bible says that in those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Now this man is told to set his house in order that he would soon die and not live. Look at his reaction. He turns his face to the wall. He's deathly sick. He prays to the Lord. He reminds the Lord of his life service. And he'd been a wonderful king over God's people. Hezekiah was a righteous man. And he said, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember how I've walked before you in truth. How I've done that which is good in your sight. I've had a perfect heart. And uh, he wept sore. That seems to be a very common reaction. Turning to God, prayer, such things as that. This man has lived a good life. But whether we've lived a good life or not, many times people turn to the Lord in, in hours of death, when death is imminent. I've had people do that in my life as, as I've gone through the ministry. I have baptized people up until two or three days before they died. Because when they were confronted with the possibility of sudden death, life took on something more serious than they had ever made it. And they uh, wanted to get close to the Lord and get their lives right. In Hebrews 9 and 27, you and I are given a very similar message to what Hezekiah got. The Bible says that as it is appointed unto men once to die... But after this, the judgment. We are going to die. We have an appointment with death. And in essence, God has said to everybody here, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Every one of us are warned in Scripture here that we're going to die, that there's a day appointed for our death. And so that's going to happen one day. And unless Jesus comes, we're not going to evade that. That's going to be something very real, something that happens. I believe because of that, every so often, we ought to think about this subject that we're studying this morning. And I want you to suppose today that you get this message, that word comes to you that you don't have very long at all to live, maybe a matter of weeks. How do you think that would affect you? How would you react? What would you do? What would you not do? I think those are things we ought to consider right now. Because one day that word may come to us like that, or we may get no word at all and just be out of here in a car accident. We still have any idea. I want to talk this morning about what some people would need to do if they got this message. Some things that we would not do. And then I want to talk about some things that we would do. First of all, there, there are things that some people need to do. If, uh, if they got a message that death is very imminent, that they would soon die, some people need to believe in Jesus Christ. And I know that sounds weird in our, in our country in this day and age to think about somebody that needs to believe in Jesus. After all, hadn't everybody heard of Jesus? You know, it's one thing to hear about Christ. It's another thing to believe in Him. And there's so many people that have really never opened the Bible. They've never looked at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the story of Christ. They've never investigated Christ. They've really never studied those books. They've not studied His life. 
They've never really looked at this man. And the reason you know they haven't is they have no real faith in him. They will not serve him. They're not interested in him. They don't go to church. They don't pick up scripture. And that's a great problem. In John 3 and 18, there on the inside, third page, the Bible says, He that believeth in him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If, if a person hasn't believed in Christ, they're under condemnation right now. They're on death row. That's what the Bible says. And there are great consequences for not believing in Christ. And here they are. In John 8 and 24, Jesus said this to the Jews. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am He, you shall die in your sins. So if we don't believe in Christ, we're going to die in sin. Now what's bad about dying in sin? Verse 21 of John 8. Christ said, I go my way and ye shall seek me and shall die in your sins. Whither I go, you cannot come. So if we die in sin where Christ is gone, we don't go. We just can't go there. So the Bible demands that we believe in Jesus in order to be saved. And God understands that we can't believe without evidence. He's not asking us to believe in some myth, some bit of hearsay. God has supplied us with a book that is just filled with evidence about Jesus Christ. That's why I mentioned earlier that a lot of people really have never, they've never examined Christ. When you examine Jesus, there's just no one like Him. And God, fortunately, has given us evidence. Now, if we were on a jury in a courtroom, and we had prosecuting attorney and defense attorneys and things, and they either wanted us to believe in the guilt or innocence of the person on trial, they would present evidence, wouldn't they? They'd bring testimony. They might bring phone records, bank records, uh, maybe recordings, videos, eyewitness testimony. They would, would bring everything they could to try to convince us either of the guilt or the innocence of that person. And you and I would weigh all the evidence and we'd reach a decision. That's basically what God's done in Scripture. He's just piled evidence in there to convince us about Jesus. He's going to hold us accountable if we don't believe in Christ, but He's given us the evidence for that faith. And He's given a lot of it in Scripture. And when you look at it, there's just so much. For example, let's notice this uh, second page. And I'm not going to read all this, and we have looked at some of this. <coughs> but these are the miracles of Christ. And we started a little bit of study on these back a time. We may do some more. But the first seven miracles up there at the top are the signs that John recorded in his gospel. And then John, notice everyone over on the right side has John for a reference. Some of the other writers also refer to them. But John recorded every one of them. But then John tells us in verse chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 of his book, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book, that is in John. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. So when we open up Scripture, we have a record then of the great miracles Jesus did. We see the Lord walking on the Sea of Galilee. We read of Him taking loaves and fishes, just a few, Blessing them, multiplying them, and feeding a group of 5,000 people and taking up more fragments when he was through than what he started with. On another occasion, Jesus fed 4,000. That was just men. The Bible doesn't even record the number of women and children. There may have been 12 to 15,000 people there. And he took a few barley loaves and fishes and fed that multitude. Just incredible miracles are are scattered throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All kinds of evidence. There is prophecy here. And here's the miracles, by the way, recorded on this page for you. We're not going to look at those or read those. But there's other kinds of evidence. There are prophecies, dozens and dozens and dozens of them, that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ, some of it over which He had no control. 
One such prophecy, it was predicted by Zechariah that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus had nothing to do with how much Judas bargained for with the chief priests and rulers of the people when he bargained to deliver Christ over to them. 30 pieces of silver was the prophecy. That's exactly what he got. Whether the soldiers gambled over the Lord's clothing as he died, Jesus had no control, but David had predicted that a thousand years before it happened. They gambled for his clothing. Isaiah tells us he would be buried with the rich in his death. He had no control over the fact that Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, offered his new sepulcher for the body of Jesus to be buried in. He was buried with the rich, just like Isaiah had predicted. Jesus had no control over these things. And, and when you investigate the, the evidence in there about Christ, it's just overwhelming who He is. God has just placed so much in there that it's impossible for someone not to be convinced if they're honest. You can look at the way Jesus spoke. Remember when the officers went out to arrest Him there in John 7? The rulers had sent officers out to go take Jesus and bring Him back. They came back empty-handed after a long time. And they ask them, where is he? Why have you not brought him? And they tell him, they tell their rulers, never a man spake like this man. We've never heard anything like this. The Bible says in Matthew 7 when he finished the Sermon on the Mount that he spake with authority, that the people were astonished at his doctrine. For he spoke to them as one having authority and not as the scribes. There was a, a difference even in the way Jesus preached just the way that he emphasized the things by which he spoke. You could see that he had the authority of heaven, the authority of God behind him, and people recognized that he was so much different than these hypocritical Pharisees they had heard teaching for so long. So there's evidence in here, and when you look at Christ, you understand that Jesus lived as only God could live perfectly. You understand that he loved as only God could love that he loved everybody, even his enemies. You understand that he wrought mighty miracles such as only God could, could do because nobody could do what he did. You understand that he spoke as only God could speak with such great authority. Everything about him indicates that he is the Son of God, that he is the Christ, the Messiah. Some people would need to believe in Jesus. Secondly, some people would need to obey the gospel. There was a time in my life I'd never heard that term. Now some of you that grew up in the church, you've heard of it all your life. You've heard about obeying the gospel. You've heard preachers trying to get you to obey the gospel. I never heard that term. I grew up in churches all my life. Up until I was about 21 years old, I didn't know what obeying the gospel was. Never heard of it. The preachers that preached where I attended never, never used that term. But the Bible uses the term in Romans 10, 16 there. Paul quotes Isaiah and he says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Esaias, or Isaiah, saith, Lord, who hath believed a report? So he talks about obeying the gospel. And there's a reason why we need to obey the gospel. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 to 9, Paul said to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be re revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. So people that don't obey the gospel are going to be punished. What? With everlasting destruction. So that makes this very important that people obey the gospel. I mean, they're going to be punished an everlasting destruction, something that will endure forever through eternity if they don't obey the gospel. That, that begs the question then, what is the gospel? And the word just means good news, doesn't it? Good news. And what is the good news? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 4. Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also you are saved, 
if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul said when he preached the gospel, he preached Christ's death, burial, resurrection. How do you obey that? How do we obey the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? If that's the gospel, how do you obey the gospel? Answer in baptism. Romans 6 and verse 3 to 7. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death, therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. <clears throat> so in baptism we die with Christ. The old person that we were, our old man as the Bible calls it, is put to death, it's crucified with Him. The body of sin is destroyed. And a new person is raised up to walk in newness of life. This is the new birth. And it's done by obeying the gospel. And that's why everybody has to obey the gospel or suffer everlasting punishment. So there are a lot of people then that would need to obey the gospel. If word came to them, set your house in order. You're going to die and not live. Then certainly they would do that. Some people would just need to be faithful. Just faithful. This is the faithful Christian. Revelation 2 in the latter part of verse 10. The Bible says, Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee the crown of life. Now we misuse this verse a lot. I've heard it misused ever since I've been in the church. We use it sometimes to say, be faithful till the day you die. And of course that's, that's something we've got to do all right. But the verse is not talking about that. The verse is talking about Christians back in the first century under severe persecution from Rome being faithful to the point of death. In other words, be faithful to the point that you would die for Jesus. That's the thought in the verse. Be so faithful that if you were called upon by someone who told you, I will behead you unless you denounce Jesus, just be prepared to die. Let him take your head off. That's the import of the verse there. Be thou faithful unto death. Be faithful to the point of death. And Christ said, if you'll do that, I'll give you a crown of life. He expects us to die for Him if we're called upon to do it, rather than to deny Him, but to give our life right there. And I know people that have had talks with their families. I know folks in the church that have simply told their children, look, if it comes down to where we're ever threatened, and I'm asked to deny faith in Jesus in order to save your lives, you're just going to have to understand your life's going to be taken because I can't deny Christ. And they tell their family members that. And that's the point, that's the import of this verse, and that's how it needs to be. In other words, we need to be that faithful, and there are people that just need to keep on being faithful. 1 Corinthians 15 and 58. Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So much labor that you and I do in this life is all in vain. You know, I think of that every time I mow the yard. Don't you? That's labor in vain. I'm going to have to mow that again in a week or two. We do a lot of things in vain, don't we? We just keep doing it over and over and over. But you see, our labor in the Lord's never in vain. And that time we helped the widow or that time we went to see someone that was ill or the time we gave to somebody that was in need, the time that we did that good thing for them, that's never in vain. The time we spoke to somebody about Jesus, 
tried to lead them to salvation. That's never in vain. The times that we pray for folks, whatever we do, the times that we go to church, that we break bread together, the times that we study, all of these things are labor that's not in vain in the Lord, and we're to be steadfast in it and unmovable. And some people would just need to simply do that. Other people would need to repent of their sins and pray because these are erring Christians. And the erring Christian has some straightening up to do. The Bible talks about a man in Acts 8 who was saved. His name was Simon. He was a sorcerer there in Samaria. And Philip the evangelist converted this man. And we read in verse 13 that this man believed and was baptized. And he followed... Uh, he followed uh, Philip around and watched his miracles. And then Peter and John came down from Jerusalem, two apostles, to lay hands on people and impart miraculous gifts. Simon had been a deceiver. He had been a sorcerer. He had bewitched the Samaritans. And he saw an opportunity here to make some money. That if I can get this power that Peter and John have, that I can lay hands on people, I can sell them miraculous powers and impart them to them see and he tried to buy that ability from Peter and John he's going right back you see to his old covetous ways of trying to just make money off people by deception Peter rebuked him and if you'll look in verse 20 there of Acts 8 Peter said unto him thy money perish with thee because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Now here's what he told him to do. Repent therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. So they told this erring Christian to repent and pray. They never told him to be baptized because his baptism was good once it was done scripturally. Sometimes baptisms need to be repeated. Paul told 12 men in Acts chapter 19 verses 1 to 7 that they needed to be baptized again and he assisted them in being baptized because their baptism was not scriptural. But once it's done scriptural, it doesn't have to be repeated. The, the law of pardon for an erring Christian is to repent and pray, and there are some that would need to do that. So we're asking the question, what would some people need to do? Some then would need to believe in Christ. Some would need to obey the gospel. Some would need just to continue faithful. Some would need to repent and pray. Depends upon the situation with the person. Now for a moment, let's think about some things that you and I would not do. Things we wouldn't do. One of them I'm going to suggest to you is that there wouldn't be any kind of, of a unnecessary hoarding or laying up for a so-called rainy day. I don't have a problem with people having a savings. Not a problem at all with folks that want to save for their kids' college or maybe lay back some things for later life, for their retirement years and things. It's okay to financially plan. But a lot of this laying up things you find in, in some people is just, it's just covetousness. It's just idolatry is what it is. And I know people in the church, some of them hold office in the church, that are very covetous people. They have amassed money, they have, they have lands and property, and they can't get enough money, and every time a check arrives, they head right to the bank with it. To get something out of them for work in India and, and other places would probably be very difficult to do, even though they may have thousands or hundreds of thousands. But they just keep laying up money. That's a sad situation right there. Jesus warned us about this. And what I'm saying is if life was short for you and I, we wouldn't be concerned about everything we could lay up in this life and accumulate. In Luke chapter 12, if you'll read with me beginning at verse 15, Jesus said this, He said unto them, Take heed 
And beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not of the abundance of the things which he possesseth. See, that's not what makes life. That's no life at all. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no place where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. This rich farmer had everything a man could want. God had blessed his fields with abundance. He had barns, and when came time for harvest, he went out and he just filled his barns up. He had plenty, all that he needed. There were about him likely widows and poor people, folks that really needed assistance. He could have told them, look, I've taken everything out of my fields that I can store in my barns. They're all full. And my fields just yet have abundance in them. Why don't you go to my fields and glean them and take everything you need? I don't have a need for it. And he could have helped a lot of people. But you see, he was so interested in keeping that for himself. It was his. So interested that he said, I'm going to tear down my barns and I'm going to build greater. I'm going to get all this in my barns even if I have to build greater barns. God told him, you're a fool, because tonight your soul's required of you. You're going to die. Somebody then's going to get what you've got. Then, shall who's, then who shall those things be which thou hast provided? So many people will die, and they'll leave great accumulation of wealth, Sometimes to kids that will do the same thing. They will sit on that and they'll try to build it and they'll get covetous over it. They'll try to add to it what mom and dad weren't able. Or sometimes, sometimes they'll just waste it. And all that wealth that was accumulated is just wasted as the kids live in squander and worldliness and ruin their souls on, on riches and pleasures of this life and have no time for God. This abundance of things many times, though we may think it's a blessing to those left behind, could be a curse to them. And what I'm saying to you is that if we had but a short time to live, then what we possess doesn't make a whole lot of difference, does it? Well, how much money you've got in the bank means nothing when life is running out and death is close. None of this stuff makes any difference. It's not important. And sadly, some people learn that too late in their lives. We need to be godly and we need to understand that we're not carrying anything out of here. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 6 to 10. The Bible tells us, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For well, we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be there with content. But they that will be rich, and he didn't say the rich, he's talking about those that pursue it. They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and the many foolish and hurtful lust, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So we need to flee that trap if we're, we're inclined that way. And if we had but a short time, we certainly would. Secondly, brethren, if we had but a short time, we wouldn't be guilty of trying to serve two masters. Now, Jesus warned us about this. He warned that we can't serve two masters. In Matthew 6 and 24, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other. 
else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And yet there are people that try to give God a divided heart. You see, they have too much religion in them, too much of knowledge of God's Word to get out here and just run with the world full force. They can't do that. But they can't, on the other hand, give themselves completely to the Lord because they got too much of the world in them. So what they try to do is give God a divided heart. Part of the time, I'll serve the Lord. Part of the time, I run with the world. And Jesus said, you can't do that. You can't serve two masters. You'll either hate the one and love the other, else you'll hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and man. And if we had but a short time, our service would be solely to God that time. For the rest of our time here. All of our service would be toward the Lord. In Matthew 6 and 33, Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. God says, I'll take care of you if you'll put me first. He didn't promise us a big house or a nice car, a great income, a nice job, an abundance of worldly things. But He did promise to sustain us, to feed us and to close, close us. Close, clothe us. And this is taught there in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Christ said, Why take your thought for raiment? Look at the lilies of the field. They toil not, neither do they spend, and yet Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not clothe you, O ye of little faith? He talks about taking thought for the morrow, and he said, take thought for the day. Tomorrow will take thought for itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And he taught us not to worry over things that God has promised to provide us, but just put him first. And he tells us, I'll make sure you have everything you need. He doesn't promise us that we're not going to die. He tells us we are going to die. But He promises even to sustain us in death and to take us to a place of comfort if we serve Him and to raise us up at His coming to a state of everlasting life and eternal glory. So He's provided everything we need as long as we put Him first. Number three, we would not put off for tomorrow things that we should do today. And there are a lot of people that put things off. They procrastinate. It's easy to do. Sometimes you see young people doing that. They think, well, I'm going to sow just a few wild oats here. I'm going to kick up my heels and have a little bit of fun, and then eventually I intend to serve the Lord, and I'll be faithful to Him. And that's never a wise idea. In fact, it's so good to see young people serving God at a young age. When this congregation started, some of you remember how it started, don't you? Some of you remember the coffee shop up in Bentonville. There were just a bunch of young people. They weren't married then. Just young college kids and young people barely out of high school working. And they were just meeting on Wednesday nights to talk about spiritual things. They really didn't have an agenda set. They had no theme, no no subject matter. They were just meeting at this coffee shop there in Bentonville. And so we get a call from Hattie and Catherine. And they want to know, would you like to attend that sometime? And of course I went up and Ben went up. and David eventually started coming. Lana, Shannon. We started meeting with them. We started organizing a study. And dealing with different topics instead of just haphazardly talking about things. And, but the point is, these were all young people that were interested in the Lord. Now this congregation's here today because of these young people that were part of that study group. Not so much me and Ben and David, though we studied with them, but because they had the, they had the desire for the Lord at a young age 
a desire for spiritual things, that they had already arranged their own meeting. They might not have known a lot about how to conduct it, but they were seeking the Lord at that age. And you see, there's great benefits. There's things that pay off. Jesse's come out of this, he and Catherine's marriage, and of course, Miguel. There were several marriages that came out of that little study situation, too. <laughs> and uh, some homes that have started up, and so many, so many good things happened out of that little coffee shop group. Uh, I'll always cherish that memory that we have back there. There's a lot of things that it's good to see young people do, and one of them is to serve the Lord at an early age. Ecclesiastes 12 and 1. When young people don't put this off, the Bible says, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. To remember the Creator in the days of your youth is a very valuable thing. There are some young kids here, and I mean young ones, and a few that's on up toward the teen years now, but mostly younger than that. But they're going to be grown very soon. And you that are raising these children right now, you're going to be amazed at how quickly they're graduating high school, how soon they're going to be married, how soon you're going to be grandpa and grandma. I know you don't want to think about that. There's a little old narrow window with these kids. We've talked about this little window before. It's just very, very short. You get them over here at birth and oh, maybe somewhere around 18 or whatever the age is, you're going to lose control over them. They're going to leave the nest eventually. They're going to go their way. They're going to start their own home as they should. And this little window right in here now is the only time they've got to really form their habits, their love for the Lord, their morals, their character. All of this builds right here during this little window and it's so critical that parents take time right now because you lose the window. And I want to say this to our young parents that are here, you're going to lose this window right here. It's all you got to form your kids and to get, them, to get them prepared for heaven right now. And if they may be a year or two or three years old, but right now is this time, it's in this little window. And if you don't study with them and if you don't talk to them about the Lord, and if you don't teach them and nurture them right now, you're missing your window. And you're, you're, you're doing a disservice to your kids. And you young people that fall into this age right here, do well to listen to mom and dad. Do well to get serious about religious things and about God right now. And I'll tell you why. If I'm going to give you at least a couple of reasons. Number one, you're going to pick a marriage partner here before long. You're going to marry and you can laugh all you want to. A lot of us laughed at that and we're, we're married. <laughs> Probably everybody that's married laughed at it. You're going to marry one day. Who are you going to marry? What's he or she going to, to be like? What kind of values are they going to have? How are they going to raise your children? What kind of morals will they instill in them? How about the discipline they'll give the kids? What kind of partner will they be to you? Will they be faithful? If you're picking a man, will he be a good provider? Will he be honest? Will he take care of his family? And young man, what kind of woman are you thinking about? The head cheerleader that's the prettiest thing you've ever seen on campus, or is it someone that's really pretty on the inside that's really going to be a blessing to your children and to be a real faithful partner to you? You know, that's going to be a very important decision right there for you. And you can't afford to get it wrong. Secondly, you're going to pick a career. I don't even know if I spelled that right. How about a job? <laughs> You're going to pick a job. You're going to pick a career. Some people, when they 
when they think about their life's work, they think about dollar signs. I mean, they'll go all over the country. They'll transfer to some major city somewhere, maybe way off. They don't even have a congregation there of the Lord's church. But they're chasing the dollar bill. I've seen them move off to western states like Montana or Wyoming or some place where we have nothing up there that's sound or scriptural and they're trying to raise their children and there's no faithful congregation there. And that's just not wise. You see, we've got to think about a good career that's going to pro provide us an opportunity to take care of our family. But it needs to be one where we can serve the Lord, where we can raise our children up in a good, strong environment. We need to think about where we live and what our job is. Even about promotions and transfers, we might want to turn one down because it'll take us to an area where we don't need to be because our children are going to be better off, you see, around a stable, faithful group of God's people and other kids like that, see. There are things we've got to consider. And when you're young, if your mind is on God and on pleasing Him during this time right here, that's why this little window is so important, you're going to make a better decision on your marriage partner. You're going to make a better decision on your career, on your job, because you're trying to please God in both these areas and in all areas of your life. And it's going to bring you a better life. You're going to get a better mate. You're going to get a better work situation. It's going to be better for your family and for you, for your life. You're going to be happier. And uh, if you'll just put God first in your, in your youth, remember that, kids. And let's remember that as parents who have this little window of opportunity. You know, I've talked about kids, but James 4.17 speaks to us adults pretty good. James says to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. And so us adults, we can't put off for tomorrow things we need to do today either. To know our duty to God and, and to fail to do it is to commit sin. We ought to remember that when, we, when it comes to the lost, when it comes to working for the Lord. You see, it would be sinful for us to know our duty and to do it not. When we know to do good, do it. And don't put it off. Number four, when we think about things we wouldn't do, we wouldn't remain indefinitely undecided upon religion. I, I talked to so many people in the course of my preaching years, being out holding meetings. I would go to this certain town and certain congregation, and there'd be somebody there that needed to obey the gospel. And I'd talk to them. And they'd say, well, Pat, I'm, I'm, I'm studying on that right now. I've been a little confused, and I, I'm working on it right now. I'm, I'm real serious. I, I want to serve the Lord. I'll do that before long. And it may be three or four years later I go back to that congregation. That person's still not a Christian. Because, you see, they never were serious to begin with. They were just getting rid of me. They were getting me off their back, they thought and their soul is still lost. What I'm saying is if we were running out of time and God told us to set everything in order, we don't have time to mess around. I had a brother-in-law that was in, uh, in the hospital in Fayetteville. He had terminal cancer. He had heard me preach years ago, Roy, at Holcomb Street. They'd come to several of the meetings that we had. They'd come to some Sunday services that, that we had where I preached. And they'd heard me preach the plan of salvation. And he knew about baptism. He'd heard those sermons. But he'd never done a thing. I was in New Mexico preaching and I was driving in. It was a Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, and I was on the road coming back. I got word from Fayetteville that uh, Gene wanted to see me. And uh, so I didn't even go home the next day. I got into Fayetteville the next afternoon. And before I even went to the house, I stopped by Washington Regional out here and went into his room, and he said, I'd like to be baptized. 
He'd been thinking about it, and now his time was running out, you see. So we arranged a situation with the hospital, with the chaplain and others, where we could do the baptism the next day. We had to get a big tub, and well, there was a, he was bed fast, and they had to pick him up in a lift and swing him over in a wheelchair and roll him down, and we even baptized him in the sling because he was just too weak to get out of the sling that he was in. That's how bad a shape he was in. They just picked him up and, and laid him over and then down in the tub there so we could baptize him. That was on a Tuesday. Saturday, he passed away. By Thursday of that week, he would have been in such bad shape, we couldn't have baptized him. He couldn't have been moved. He was about a day and a half to two days away from not even being able to be baptized. He had cut it that close. You see, he had remained undecided about his religion until time ran out. And I hope he did that from the heart because the following week I preached his funeral. In Acts chapter 16 is a story of a man that became a Christian the first time he ever heard the gospel. I wish I could say that. In Acts 16 and 25, we have a conversion of a jailer at Philippi. The Bible says that at midnight, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened, everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, waking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we're all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. So they tell him to believe in Jesus. A lot of people think that's it. That's all you got to do. But you see, he can't believe in Jesus. He's never heard of him. They've just told him to believe in Christ. And I mentioned all the evidence that God's put in the Bible. In his word, they'd never heard any of that. They, they couldn't believe. Verse 32, <coughs> pardon me. <clears throat> they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. You see, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So they spake the word of the Lord. He took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, that shows his repentance, and was baptized, he and all his straightway. Same hour of the night. Verse 34. When he'd brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. Saved in one hour. First time he ever heard the gospel. Imagine putting off salvation, getting to judgment day, standing before Jesus, trying to tell the Lord, I didn't know enough, Lord, to be saved. You look in the audience and there's the jailer over there. How much do you think he knew in one hour? When they spake unto him the word of the Lord, do you think he knew the qualifications of elders? Do you think he knew about instrumental music? Do you think he knew about the Lord's Supper? He didn't know any of those things. They were taught to him later. He knew enough about Jesus Christ to believe in him, to turn from his sins and repentance, and to be baptized in the name of Christ for the remission of his sins. He went the same hour of the night. You know, if time were running out, I would imagine we'd figure out right quick what we need to do to be saved because people would finally start looking at this book and be like the Jews there at Berea in Acts 17 where the Bible says that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily whether these things were so. Those are things, folks, we would not do. 
No unnecessary hoarding of goods for a so-called rainy day. No more trying to serve two masters. No more putting off for tomorrow things we ought to do now. No more this undecided thing about religion. We would become decided. Number three and finally, what would we do? And I want to suggest these things very quickly to you. Number, number one, we do everything it takes. Everything it takes. If God said set your house in order, we do everything it takes. I've had people call me before and they'd be checking on doctrines that we believe and practice. And they'd say, tell me again, Pat, about this doctrine or that doctrine. I want to be sure that I'm right with God. And they even went back and checked their beliefs on various practices. Whether or not we should have classes and women teachers, whether we should have this or that. They went back and they looked at everything about their life because they wanted to make sure I'm right with God. That's really, that's really looking at things, isn't it? One of them, in fact, was one of our preachers that passed away. I remember him calling me before he died, just checking on doctrines and things. He just wanted to be that sure. But you and I, you see, would make an examination of herself. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. The Bible says, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. Now, it's easy to look at somebody else's life. If you look at my life very long, you're going to find some flaws. It'd be easy to find something wrong with Pat Madden. I could probably look at your life for a little while and I might spot something that I didn't think was quite right. But I'll tell you what's very hard to do is to look at our own life. The Bible tells us to confess our faults one to another, but yet we're good at confessing one another's faults. Aren't we? We can tell you what so-and-so does wrong. Very seldom do you'll see one of us go to someone and tell you what we're doing wrong. But if time is running out, you see, we don't have time for that. We would examine ourselves. And we'd look back at our past life and maybe wasted years and things we had neglected with a lot of remorse and regret and we'd go back and try to correct things that we'd left undone and to undo things that we had done wrong and get those things corrected. Number two, we would study God's Word. There are a lot of people that say, well, this book is so dry, it's so boring. I don't get much out of it. Let me tell you what, if time was running out, I don't know if we can get enough of this book. 2 Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We would love this book, and it would become very important to us. Number three, we would pray. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. God would hear a few strange voices that day. What do I mean by that? Folks he hadn't heard from in a while would start praying. And there wouldn't be any of these excuses that some people make about, well, you know what, I just don't know how to pray. I just don't know how to pray. I don't know what words to say. And I've told y'all before, God's not impressed with fancy speeches from us. He's just not impressed with flowery words. He's just not. And I've mentioned some that one of the most effective prayers in the Bible was one prayed by Peter. When he went walking on the water to Jesus and he began to sink, do you know what Peter said to Christ? Did he say, Thou, O most, most august Son of the Divine Father, I beseech thee to listen and lend ear to my petitions as I speak unto thee. He didn't have time for that. He's going down. Lord, save me. That's what he said. <laughs> and the Lord saved him. 
God's not interested in our words. He's not interested in our speeches. If we can praise Him from our heart and say good things about Him, that's fine if we mean them. But you see, He just wants a sincere heart. And we would pray if we were in trouble like this, and we'd pray like Hezekiah did. He wept sore, didn't he? And we would pray like people do before they go into hospitals. We would request prayer like folks do for surgery and things like that. Some people would do that. And one thing we would do is cooperate with God in our prayers. So many times we pray, we get down on our knees in an assembly, we make some very pious remarks to God, and oh, we pray about this, and we pray, we'll pray for God to save the lost. And we'll just go to church and pray about the lost and grieve over them, and then we'll go home and sit in the recliner while people go to hell because they can't be saved if we don't take them the gospel. We can sit in church and pray over them all we want to, but it won't save them if we don't try to study with them. We've got to cooperate with God in our prayers. You know, you can ask God for daily bread all you want, but He's going to give you a job and He's going to give you opportunities to earn that daily bread. He's not going to rain bread down out of heaven on you. You're just not going to see loaves falling from the sky. We've got to cooperate. He wants us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, but expects us to roll up our sleeves and go to work. And He'll provide a way to get that bread, you see. You've got to cooperate with God in your prayers. And uh, we would do that. Number four, people would become Christians. That's another thing they'd do. Acts 26, 28, then Agrippa said to Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. We'd get persuaded, wouldn't we? And we wouldn't have to argue with so many people about whether baptism is essential. They'd understand Mark 16, 16. This is not rocket science. Jesus said in the commission, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's pretty simple. If I will believe and be baptized, I can be saved. That's what he said. That's not hard to understand. Man comes along and denies that passage and says, no, you don't have to be baptized. Jesus says you do. And we'd understand that statement. Number five, we would get right with brothers and sisters in Christ. We'd do what the Lord commanded. Look at Matthew 5 with me in verse 23 and 24. Jesus said, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there remember that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, then come and offer thy gift. Christ said, Don't worry about the, don't worry about the altar. In our case, don't worry about the Lord's Supper. Go get right with somebody that you're wrong with and then come and worship. That's what's most important to God is to get right with other people. <coughs> we didn't even get concerned about enemies. Matthew 5 and verse 44 and 45. Christ said unto us, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sendeth rain on the just and unjust. We're to love our enemies, do good to them that hate us. Bless them that curse us. Pray for them that despitefully use us and persecute us. And he said if you'll do that, you'll be like your Father is because... God sends rain on the just and unjust. Jesus said that God is good. He's good to people. The old farmer out here that won't come to church, he won't pick up his Bible, he won't serve God, 
his crops get rain just like the Christian farmer because God's good to him. The sun comes up on his fields just like it comes up on the Christian. He makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and he sends it on the unjust. Christ said that he's kind to the unthankful. And as God's children, he expects us to treat other people that way that have wronged us. To still love them and to do them good and to bless them. And we'd do that. We would forgive and forget. We would not harbor grudges. There are a lot of people that are just consumed with bitterness. You watch their lives. Bitterness overtakes them. They get a burr under their saddle with somebody. Somebody said the least little thing wrong or did something they didn't like. And they just build a, they build a mountain out of a molehill. And they hold a grudge and they get bitter and that bitterness just consumes them and eats them up. We have a scripture in Hebrews chapter 12, 14 and 15. The Bible says to follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. He talks about a root of bitterness and I've illustrated it this way before. Let's just say this is the heart of man and I know it's not a heart. But here in the heart of man there's a little bitty root. Somebody said something that we just didn't like one time. And people will latch on to that and they'll just They'll hold on to that little thing, and before long, that bitterness grows. That root gets deeper and deeper. And this plant grows up, and it just goes everywhere, and it just starts filling the heart. Before long, bitterness just takes over the heart. You see this in people. And what's bad about that is when we've got bitterness in the heart like this, and it's full of that bitterness. There's no fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And you can't find this fruit in a bitter heart. How many people do you know that are bitter, that love? There's not love in that heart, is there? How many people are filled with joy? You know, when people are bitter, they're the most miserable people to be around. There are. They're just miserable. They make everybody else miserable. All they can talk about is how they've been wronged by somebody. Peace, they don't have any peace. They're not long-suffering. And you can go on down the list. You cannot put the fruit of the Spirit in a bitter heart. And the Bible talks about a little root of bitterness springing up, troubling us whereby many be defiled. When you get a little bit of bitterness in the heart, get it out. Because you see it grows and festers, and it's worse for you than the one you're angry with. It'll destroy you. That's what it does. It doesn't hurt the other person so much but it will destroy you. And we wouldn't allow that to happen if we had but a short time. Number six, we'd go to church if a certain day was our last day to be on earth and the church met that day, we'd probably be there if we could at all. And we'd love the church Hebrews 10 and 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We would love that passage and we wouldn't dare miss unless we were hindered. And the kingdom would become the most important thing in our life. Those are things that you and I would do. We would examine ourselves. We would study. We would pray. We would become Christians. We would get right with brothers and sisters. We would we would attend church. We ought to live every day like this. Every day. 
just like it was the last day of our life because one day it will be. It'll be the last day. We don't know when that'll be. Proverbs 27 and verse 1. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. Will you be alive tomorrow? We don't know, do we? How many people have been in car accidents that thought they'd be alive? They were headed somewhere. They had plans. Maybe they were on a trip. They never finished the trip. The Bible tells us in James 4, verse 13 and 14, Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow, we will enter into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. So we have no idea about tomorrow. We certainly have no idea about a year from now. And so the Bible tells us to take every day at, every day at one at a time. We don't know what another day is going to bring forth. Those are thoughts that I, I hope will be of interest to you and beneficial to you as we think about the fact that God has said to us, just like Hezekiah, set your house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. May God bless you. If you need the Lord this morning in some way, either to become a Christian or as an erring Christian, or if there's just some way that we can help you in some way, we'll invite you now to Step out and come forward as we rise and all sing this song together. Would you come? We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.